An architect once told me that back in the early 20th century, most church narthexes were designed for just one thing, just enough room to hang up your coat on the way in and just enough room to grab your coat on the way back out the door. It was a pass-through space. There was no room to linger, presumably no desire to linger. But by the end of the 20th century, churches began to add on to their buildings, and what was the number one thing most churches added? A large fellowship hall. People now wanted space to linger, to socialize, to share meals. Now, fellowship may not seem like a spiritual discipline, but seen the right way it is. And today on Groundwork, we'll ponder the discipline of fellowship. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And Dave, we are now coming to the final program, the seventh program in this seven-part series, our second series on Groundwork on spiritual disciplines. The first series we did covered a lot of the ones we often think about, like fasting and, and so forth. This one has covered things that we don't always think of our disciplines, like keeping the Sabbath or right. keeping our commitments, but they really are. And today, we're going to think about a fellowship, which doesn't seem like a discipline, but I think we'll see that there are, are reasons why it can be and should be seen that way. Exactly. And uh, in our last program, we talked about the discipline of reconciliation or peacemaking and how difficult that can be, uh, how challenging. But it's intimately connected with what we want to talk about today, the practice or the experience of fellowship. And very often the one is based on the other or fellowship won't happen until there's been reconciliation. Right. So we'll talk about that connection uh, to some degree. But first, let's just think a little bit about the meaning of fellowship and some of the the background in Scripture uh, about it. And it might seem that you would go instantly to the New Testament and the fellowship of the church, but actually, biblically, it's much uh, deeper and longer than that to trace the the meaning of this term. Right. In our next segment of this show, we will do that. We'll go to the New Testament. But let's start with that Old Testament background. Now, it depends a little bit what translation, what version of the Bible you use. But in most Bibles, the word fellowship pops up 85 times in the Old Testament and always, always, always in the same connection, namely the name of an offering that you could bring to the temple and, and offer the fellowship offering. Now, some Bibles call it the peace offering, and that got me to thinking about why. So I dusted off my uh, somewhat dusty Hebrew, and what was the word translated as fellowship or peace? I checked it out with a colleague of mine who knows Hebrew better than me because it looked to me like it was the plural of the word shalom, which doesn't make a lot of sense. We don't talk about shaloms. Or if we're talking about peace, we don't talk about pieces. I mean, you could talk about pieces of a puzzle, but that's a different spelling. So it's kind of odd. The plural of shalom, shalomim, is what is the fellowship offering. That's not really translatable, which is maybe why we've rendered it fellowship. But isn't that interesting, Dave? Fellowship has roots in shalom, which we thought about in the reconciliation program, too. Yeah. I think there's something significant there. I think you're on to something, Scott, uh, just with that word study. But it also uh, reminds me of a series we did on the book of Leviticus right. where we looked at those different offerings and uh, all the rules and regulations, and it all seems so esoteric and so far-fetched to us, killing animals and burning them on the altar and the priests and their vestments and their robes. But I think we can really get into the thank offering or the peace offering or the fellowship offering because it was distinctive in a couple of important ways, one of which was 
It was voluntary. Right. All the other offerings for sin and everything else were mandatory. This is something everybody had to do. Only the fellowship offering was voluntary. And when did you do it? You did it when you were particularly joyful, when you were really overwhelmed with gratitude. God came through for you in a big way, or you were just so delighted that you have this good relationship with the creator of the universe, the God of Israel, with Yahweh, that you just want to just sort of gush a little bit. And so that's when you would bring a fellowship offering. So this was the only offering you did out of sheer delight. Not required. You didn't have to do it. You did it because, wow, I've got fellowship with God. So it's called a fellowship offering founded on peace. I have this peace with God. And so, wow, that's why I'll do it. I just want to tell you the priest, I know I don't have to do this, but I want to. But that's something lovely about that. That's why uh, it's often connected with Thanksgiving for some special act of gratitude. You know, God has done something great for you or to you. And uh, you want to give back to him somehow. And so you bring this fellowship offering. But there's a second aspect to it that's kind of interesting too, and that maybe connects directly with our fellowship halls and our churches that you talked about. Uh, This was the only offering that the person who made it was allowed to eat or invited even to participate in uh, by eating because these were animal sacrifices or sometimes grain uh, bread was offered. Uh, But in any case, there was a meal involved here. Yeah, isn't that something? All of the other sacrifices require the complete consuming of the meat, the bird, the grain, whatever it was that you brought. That's what made it a sacrifice. Something of value had to be given up completely, but not the uh, fellowship offering. They would just burn a little little bit of fat on the altar and then cook the rest of the meat, and then you could eat it. You could share it with the priest. You could share it with your family. You could share it with the poor and the needy, right? When we think fellowship today in the church today, we think of breaking bread together. And this literally could happen. In fact, here's how this offering is described in Leviticus 7. Uh, If they offer it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with this thank offering, they are to offer thick loaves of bread made without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, thin loaves made without yeast and brushed in oil, and thick loaves of the finest flour, well-kneaded oil mixed in. Along with their fellowship offering of thanksgiving, they are to present an offering with thick loaves of bread made with yeast. And they're to bring, and it goes on and on, and then the meat, you know, you, you, you can eat it. In fact, you need to eat it all right then and there. But so bread, meat. Sounds like a meal, right? Uh, And again, this is the only sacrifice you actually were allowed to consume. Yeah, and different kinds of bread. That's kind of interesting, too. I don't know. Two without yeast, one with. Yeah, what the significance of that is, but I think I'd rather eat the one with yeast. Uh, It's going to be a little more filling. And notice it's described as an expression of thankfulness. It's also called this thank offering. So it is a welling up, an expression of gratitude, And uh, Scott, we saw in the last program that God is the primary agent of reconciliation. It's always God who takes the initiative. And for Israel, God was the God of covenant. God was the God who had shared his name through Moses with his people, Yahweh, the Lord, the one who makes promises and keeps them, the God who is faithful, the God of steadfast love, of chesed and uh, emeth and faithfulness. And so our initial instinctive worship is a response to all this. It's to give thanks to this God who has fellowship with us that he himself has established. And 
we say in gratitude to him, yes. Yeah. By the way, one other occasion for um, offering this fellowship offering or peace offering was when you had fulfilled a vow. Uh, so you had made a, and God enabled you to fulfill a vow, a promise you had made, and it worked, and and it happened, and you came through, and God came through, and there again, out of the fullness of your heart, you would offer that. So all of that is some of the deep background in the Bible from the Old Testament that this fellowship ties in with peace, with having great joy and having a great relationship with God. But of course, in the New Testament, fellowship is used also with some frequency, but in a different way and yet in a connected way. So in just a moment, we'll turn to the New Testament. How did you learn to pray? When Jesus' disciples wanted to learn how to pray, he responded with a brief, easy-to-learn prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. This beautiful prayer serves as a template for one of the most significant things we do as Christians, pray. It helps us acknowledge our total dependence on God as our Heavenly Father and our call to love and serve Him in all areas of our lives. In the month of February, join today for a series of devotions about the Lord's Prayer. Refresh, refocus, and renew at todaydevotional.com. I'm Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork, where today we're wrapping up a series on uh, some of the more unusual spiritual disciplines, or perhaps less thought of as spiritual disciplines. And we're talking about the discipline of fellowship, which, as we've seen in the Old Testament, is a form of the word for shalom or peace, as expressed in the fellowship or the peace or the thank offering under the law. And in the New Testament, the word is also one you might be familiar with. If shalom is the only Hebrew word most of us as Christians know, then maybe the only Greek word we really know is koinonia, and that is the word in the New Testament for fellowship. And it is a famous word. If you Google it, go ahead and do it. Google it. You'll get six million hits. Uh, and although some of those hits on koinonia will be dictionary definitions of the word, mostly what you'll find is koinonia school, koinonia ministries, koinonia church, koinonia farms, a place for everyone, according to the ad, koinonia institute, the koinonia praise band, the koinonia coffee house. In fact, Dave, a couple of years ago, a 14-year-old young man named Karthik Namani, he won the national spelling bee by correctly spelling the last word of the competition, and it was koinonia. That's amazing research, Scott. I, I it's really Google, got, it's Google. I got to compliment you on that one. But okay, koinonia, uh, its root is koine, which means common. Common, not in the sense of ordinary, uh, not common as opposed to special, but common as opposed to private. Uh, right. Common, that which is held by all. So the Boston Common is that green park in the middle of the city that everyone belongs to. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican tradition doesn't mean it's kind of ordinary uh, every day. Uh, it means it's prayer to be expressed commonly or by all together. So that's koine. And we encounter it most famously, perhaps, in Acts chapter 2. It's at the end of the Pentecost sermon that the apostle Peter delivered after the Spirit was poured out. And then we read this in Acts 2, verse 40 and following. With many other words, Peter warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. 
all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So they devoted themselves to the koinonia, Peter says here, or Acts says, after Peter's sermon. And they had everything in koine, in common. They were a community. Uh, They practiced an early form of communism, or perhaps uh, we should say communitarianism, because it had very little in common with later communism, what we think of. But all of this emphasis on the mutuality of their life, on the exchange of possessions and goods so that nobody was in need, it's kind of an idyllic picture of the early church, isn't it? Yeah, and it doesn't last real long either. I mean, the early church eventually gives way to some squabbles, and we're only a couple chapters away from Ananias and Sapphira and so forth. You know, to this day, we tend to yoke fun, food, and fellowship. We put those three things together, fun, food, and fellowship. Uh, I guess they were having fun, but they certainly had food, (laughs) and they certainly had fellowship. And so that was, again, sort of on the last program day, we talked about reconciliation as being both vertical and horizontal. This is sort of the horizontal plane. We're kind of flipping it. We began with the vertical plane with reconciliation, how we get made right with God. Now we've started with the uh, the horizontal plane of people in the church having everything in common. But that, Dave, is rooted in that vertical dimension of God. Here's uh, the, the blessing at the very end of 2 Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And that's echoed by John in his first letter, 1 John 1. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So that striking phrase from 2 Corinthians, it's often used as a benediction at the end of a worship service. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've heard it many times. The grace of the Lord Jesus the love of God, and the koinonia of the Spirit, the participation in the Spirit, the fact that we have been united with God and Christ through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So our commonality with the Spirit, the fact that he's come to indwell us, is what also unites us through the Spirit with the Son and the Father. It's The fellowship is our very life with the triune God. Which is amazing, and it does return us. Earlier in this series, and we thought about the discipline of prayer, we talked about how prayer is conversation, and conversation is rooted in relationship, and how Adam and Eve just walked with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Their conversation with God was so natural before sin marred everything. Well, here we sort of get a return to to Eden, uh, that we have been restored in our fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, right? It's the conduit to give us a relationship with the fullness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's quite amazing. So when we get that blessing that may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you, that packs a punch. Yeah. Uh, That says it all. That's the gospel in just a couple words. Or you think of John's statement, to unpack that just a bit more, John says, the reason I'm writing this, and you could expand that to the whole New Testament, is so that you will have fellowship with us, so that you'll be drawn into relationship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So again, as you said, Scott, it's starting with the horizontal. 
as the apostles and their successors reach out and invite people into this fellowship we call the church, they find that in being united on this horizontal level, they're also going to experience fellowship or koinonia with God the Father, the Son, and God the Spirit as a result. Exactly. It's kind of in the spiritual DNA of us as followers of Jesus Christ, having this uh, fellowship founded on the reconciliation we thought about previously. But, Dave, a good question is, so how is fellowship a discipline? It looks more like something that just kind of spontaneously bubbles up at a party or at a youth group retreat, uh, or it's a potluck at church in the aptly named Fellowship Hall. doesn't sound like a discipline, so in what sense is it? Or does it need to be, at times, also a discipline? Well, we'll conclude the program and this series by thinking about that in just a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose, and Dave, we've been talking about fellowship, fellowship offerings in the Old Testament, koinonia in the New Testament, but how is this fellowship? How do we construe it as a discipline, since that's why we put it in this series? In a sense, David, you could say that calling it a discipline almost takes the fun out of fellowship. You may as well talk about, you know, having the discipline of eating ice cream. If anything, you need a discipline not to eat it. Um, (laughs) It would kind of take the fun out of ice cream to say you have to, it's a discipline to eat it. So we don't want to take the fun and the effervescence out of fellowship. And yet it can be a task, a discipline, a habit. You know, earlier you said something about food, fun, and fellowship, the, the things that go together. So often in our churches, in our church life, you know, when we're putting a notice out for some event, uh, those are the things we highlight. So so it's sort of like, oh, yeah, I want to go there. Uh, um, If you want young people to show up, order pizza. Exactly. But I think we can all understand there are times and ways when we kind of have to work at fellowship, when we have to commit ourselves to it as a discipline because it's the right thing to do. In one sense, that's true of every one of these things we've talked about in this series. It's the right thing to do. It's going to promote our spiritual health and well-being, our wellness. It's going to deepen our relationship with God. It's going to draw us closer to the example that Jesus has set for us because he did all this stuff. Right. Uh, he's the basis for all of it. And fellowship can be like that too because, frankly, in our society— it's got some pretty stiff headwinds yeah. that it's fighting against. Yeah, we're called to be rugged individualists. Robert Putnam is his name. He's a sociologist. He wrote a book uh, whose title became very famous. The, the title probably became more famous than the book. Lots of people who never read the book knew the title, which was Bowling Alone. 
Back in the day, there used to be bowling leagues and there were rotary clubs and lions clubs and associations that brought people together. And those have faded uh, as the 20th century ended and the 21st century began. And now it's almost like we're bowling alone. We're lone rangers. Think of all those TV ads you see for Jeep Cherokee or something where there's one person driving a car up to the top of a cliff and they get out and ah, they're all by themselves. Yeah, right. and this is the ideal. Or some couple camping on a mountain lake and not another other soul uh, to be found. Or the opposite extreme, there's some big crowd or party scene where it's all fueled by uh, overindulgence in alcohol and uh, everybody's kind of rioting. I mean, the idea of fellowship with God and therefore with one another because of our common life in Christ, that's not something that we're attuned to culturally. Although perhaps in this season that we've been living through, where we've been cut off from so much fellowship, we've been powerfully reminded that we are creatures who were made by God for community. We were made to find our completion in fellowship with one another. And for some reason, Dave, I was just reminded of a play written by sort of the existentialist uh, French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. The play was titled No Exit, and it was set in in hell. And there's a group of people locked in a room together and can't go into all the details. But the people annoy each other, and they get under each other's skin. And at one point, one of the characters says, oh, now I figured it out. And here's the, the most famous line of the play, hell is other people. Well, Dave, that's a horrible thing to say because it goes against the truth of what you just said. God actually made us for community. If we regard other people as a problem to be solved and to be escaped from, that's the complete opposite of how God made us in God's own image. So we've got some cultural headwinds, but let's be honest, Dave, and this now harks back to the previous program on reconciliation. The other thing that makes fellowship a discipline, something we maybe need to force ourselves to do, is the simple fact of the matter is that we don't always get along with everybody at church. In fact, some people we find downright annoying. Yeah, and that's simply the truth. <laughs> Anytime you're involved in a fairly large group, even just a mid-sized group of people, you're going to find individuals who maybe don't naturally appeal to you. They're not your type, as we say, or they rub you the wrong way. Or you may be a person who doesn't like, uh, simply doesn't like crowds. You're an introvert. So then what do you do? Are you excused on that grounds from pursuing the discipline of fellowship? And I think the answer is no. I think we have to recognize there's a reason Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, not your best friend right. as yourself, not your spouse as yourself, because your neighbor is given to you. You don't choose your neighbor. Right. And you don't choose the fellow members of your church. Uh, they're chosen for you by God. So uh, in a sense, it's kind of a laboratory where God invites us to practice the grace of forgiving and being forgiven, of reconciliation, as we talked, uh, so that we can associate together, we can be together as a spiritual family, the family of God, and we can love one another across our differences. doesn't mean we like everybody. doesn't mean you know, you're going to want to date that person. Uh, but it does mean we can accept them be on the basis of our own acceptance. Right. Loose Meads used to say that, uh, that you can love people you don't like. And maybe uh, the discipline of fellowship, you know, I mean, maybe in the abstract you'd say, well, I don't want to have dinner with Martha. I don't want to have dinner with the Joneses. I don't like them. But then maybe you force yourself to go to the church potluck to have some fellowship time 
And you might find out there's some likable stuff about these people after all. It's sort of the famous C.S. Lewis line we've quoted in different connections here on Groundwork, Dave, uh, where Lewis said, you know, if you don't love somebody, act lovingly toward them. And sometimes the feeling follows after all. Uh, When you act loving long enough, sometimes you begin to feel it too. And so maybe if we've discipline ourselves to participate in the fellowship of the church, we might get to know people in a way we wouldn't have otherwise and find that there's lots to admire and appreciate about them. And frankly, this is where we're all heading, right? Right. (laughs) In the final visions of Revelation in Revelation 21 and 22, it doesn't really use the word fellowship, but it certainly talks about the thing where John sees a new heaven and a new earth and the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed for her husband. And John writes, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is among people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Fellowship with God and with one another forever. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Dave Bass with Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to dig deeply into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. Connect with us at GroundworkOnline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney.